0: The following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the land who is was slain may receive the full reward his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit GCCLasCruces.com. Well friends, if you open up your Bibles to Psalm 63, this is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. We'll talk more about that as we get into the text, but I invite you to hear the words of our living God this morning from Psalm number 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in the Lord. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the malice of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Psalm 63, one of the most beautiful of the psalms, as we just read. John Chrysostom, who was an archbishop of Constantinople in the mid-300s and 400 AD, said that it was decreed and ordained by primitive church fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. And he said, the spirit and soul of the whole book of psalms is contracted into this one. Psalm 63 was known as the morning hymn and would be sung at the beginning of Sunday services. It was viewed by the early church as being this kind of central psalm that was spoke to so many biblical realities, biblical truths, praises of God. It was treasured. So let us now, as we Look at it today. Feast our eyes and hearts upon God's word that was found to be so glorious throughout history and should be so glorious for us this morning. Just to give some historical context before we dive into the text itself, I would like to just give you some information as to what was going on here. What what set the tone for this psalm? As you saw at the very beginning, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So what is the time here? What Where are we at? How can we understand this? Well, there's two viewpoints that have kind of competed over time. Some people have said that this was written by David when he was fleeing from Saul, who was seeking to kill him, and he was in the wilderness. The second one is that people say he was in the wilderness, fleeing from his son, Absalom, who sought to kill him. It appears based on the text and the last verse. If you look at that last verse, it says but the king shall rejoice in God, that he's talking probably about this latter time. He's fleeing from Absalom, and he's in the wilderness. If you're interested in reading the whole story, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel at some point in your your free time and read chapters 13 through 19, and it will give you an in-depth look into what was going on. Essentially, what had happened was there was a, a sin committed by Amnon, one of David's other sons, and he did not take it seriously enough in Absalom's eyes. He should have been punished much more severely, for sure, but David kind of turned the other eye and didn't look to it much. Well, Absalom took it into his own hands after some time and ended up killing Amnon, and he fled into the desert and he left to another town. Finally, after a couple of years, Still angry, he sought to overthrow David, and so he gathered up an army and proceeded to make his way to Jerusalem, and David found himself running for his life, fleeing into the wilderness, trying to regroup regroup and prepare for the imminent battle that would come. So whether or not it is Saul or Absalom, there are some truths that ring out for all of us here. David is obviously in the wilderness. While it's not always completely desert in the lands around Judah, he was away from his home. He was in the midst of some pretty barren landscapes with minimal people, minimal support, and those that were with him were the only ones. He was sought to be, he was being sought for to be killed by someone else. A reality that would probably lay heavy on his heart and on his mind as he Fled to and fro from pursuers after him. And David must see that he is unable to care for his own life, his kingship on his own. He had to be able to let it go, he had to run. He left the very place that would have been his authority to say that he was king. And he fled into the wilderness like a nomad with nothing but what he could carry with no one but those that followed. And it will only be by the living God that he would be sustained. One thing as I thought about this text a lot and prayed on this text that I can only imagine is the feeling of pressure. The feeling of the weight of the reality of what was happening for him in this very moment. All of us have probably experienced pressure at different times. There's probably been these feelings where we have the weight of the world on our shoulders. And then I read about David, and you think to yourself, well, none of the stuff I went through seems so bad. I've never been running from my home because my own son sought to kill me, sought to take over and be king because he thought he could do it better. He already had the weight of being king, which came with a heavy burden, came with much work and much effort. And he must have been feeling this sense of rejection and hurt. He had just fled from his home. He left everything. And why? Because his his own had sought to destroy him, to send him away, to get him out of the kingship. What an intense pressure must have weighed on him. Not only not knowing what would come in the sense of battle, but then also not knowing where to go or what to take, not knowing where the next meal would be or where they might find water, just fleeing into the wilderness. But then, in the midst of all of this, we find this most beautiful psalm, the one that throughout history has been known to be one of the most precious of the psalms, one of the central points of the psalms. So as we look at our text today, I invite you to see three points In verses 1 through 4, the search for the Lord. In numbers 5 through 8, the satisfaction in the Lord. And in verses 9 through 11, the security in the Lord. So let us turn our attention now to verses 1 through 4, the search for the Lord. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Notice this beginning. Notice what David says to start off. Remember, he's in this wilderness. He's running from Absalom. He's being sought after to be killed. And how does he begin the psalm? Oh God, you are my God. He cries out in a personal relationship with the Almighty God, with Yahweh. Notice he doesn't cry out to someone else. He doesn't even cry out to himself or to the wilderness and say, why am I here? No, he cries out to His God, the only God, the only God that could do anything about his current situation, he cries out to him. We already have some deep theological truths just planted in those first few words. He's not approaching some absent God that has just left him to roam the earth now. He's not approaching some distant God who doesn't really have a care for his people rather he's approaching a god who is in some form a personal relationship has personal investment in his people a personal care it tells us significant truths about the god who we have come to gather around his word this morning it tells us something about who this god is that we're reading his word this morning he's the one that desires a relationship with his people he desires it so much that as we know, down in history, he would send his son to make sure that that could be solidified through him. I, I, as you're reading these texts, I'm gonna, we'll probably end up talking about this again later, but as you're reading these texts, remember David hasn't seen the Messiah. And yet he's calling on God as his own God. And then God sends his son to die on a cross so that we might come into personal relationship. So that we might be able to approach him that we might be able to come to this throne of grace and to experience his mercy and his love. God was not far off. Even in the midst of David running into the wilderness, there was no place literally that he could go where God was not present. Even as he prepared to battle against his own son, God was not far off. Even when David was feeling separated from home, even when he left everything, he left the, the holy place, which we'll talk about, and the sense of the place where he would gather to come before the Lord, he had left all that. And yet he says, oh God, you are my God, you are present with me. I know you are there. I seek you out. He says, earnestly, I seek you. Many translations have the word early placed here in the text. So it would be, oh God, you are my God, early will I seek you. While the ESV has translated as earnestly, we can gain some similar insights early. Earnestly, it's this first thing, it's the most important thing. Diligence. It's the preeminent thing on his mind in the morning and throughout the day. That he be in relationship with this Lord, this one he is called upon. Oh God, you are my God. He, he seeks to search him out in the midst of All times, but especially in this trying time. He has a passionate desire to be with the Lord. It is first thing in the morning that he does this. He seeks the Lord not because God was not present, but because David desires to see and experience the reality of that presence. David desires to commune with the Almighty God. He desires it so much, he goes on to say, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We have this physical reality that David is in this wilderness, away from everything, and as we talked about, as he fled, probably able to just grab what he could carry, what his people could carry, and run off. So, he's in a wilderness, he's in a desert, a dry and weary land, without food, without water. He has a sense of a physical reality that he needs something, and it shapes his view of this metaphor he uses then, and he says, but I'm not so much worried about these physical needs being met. He says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. The dry and weary land is this backdrop that creates the imagery for Him thirsting and fainting for the Lord. Not because the Lord could provide food or water. Of course he could. But that wasn't his main purpose. He doesn't say that my, my stomach is growling with hunger. My tongue requires quenching. No, he says my soul. We see frequently that being in the wilderness is a setting wherein the Lord communes with his chosen people. Moses and Israel, right? They're in the desert, and that's where most of the Pentateuch was received. Elijah was in the wilderness when God came to him. Same with John the Baptist. Christ was driven out into the wilderness after his baptism by John to be with the Lord. The wilderness appears to be a a meeting place of the Lord with his people, where the defenses are stripped away, where distraction and material goods are no longer present. They're limited to just the few things you could carry. And you're left completely vulnerable before the Lord. It's quieting, silencing. But notice the experience that David has. David is in the midst of this intense pressure, everything seeming to close in around him, his own son desiring to overthrow him, And he is quieted before the Lord in the wilderness. And what is his response? He says, my soul thirsts for you. From the depths of his inner man or his inner being, he desires the Lord. He desires the Lord like the water for a thirsty person. The Lord is life. David acknowledges his desperate need for the Lord using this this language of thirsting because water is a necessity for us to survive and he says I thirst you are a necessity for me to survive he says my flesh faints for you he is weary without the Lord his body feels like it cannot continue on in the situation without being in communion with his God he cries out saying my body cannot handle it if you are not here with me I need your presence. I need to experience it. So David seeks the Lord as one who is thirsty to the point of exhaustion. He is at this point where he cries out, Lord, Lord, I need you. Oh God, you are my God. And he recalls back to where he has experienced the Lord before. He says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. As David longs for The Lord, so passionately, so desperately, he recalls the place where he communed with God before, where his thirst had been quenched, where his flesh had been sustained. And he looks back and he says, in this sanctuary, in the tabernacle, this holy place, the temple, that is where I have communed with you. He had just parted from the temple. He had left the ark. If you go back and look at the story, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25, he says, Then the king said to Zadok, the priest, carry the ark of God back into the city. He was taking the ark with him, and he ends up sending the priest back with his sons to take the ark back. And he says, If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. So David is away from the ark. He's away from this place where he communed with God. He's away from the temple, the dwelling place of the Lord. but he remembers that place as the one wherein he would see the glory of God, the power and the glory of God. There have been some argument that David had Theophanies or physical experiences of God made to man, or like a vision. However, whether that was the case or not, we know one thing about the temple. It was considered to be the dwelling place of the Lord in the midst of the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled it. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 1 Kings chapter 8 And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So David has seen this glory of the Lord in the holy place. He's known this. He's known what happened in the Exodus. He's known what happened where God dwells in the midst of his people. It's this holy place. And this is the place that he remembers experiencing the Lord in his power and in his glory. But he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, even in the midst of all of this, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We come out of David saying that, the Lord, saying that he's seeking the Lord, that he thirsts and faints for him which were true and present realities, pointing to two physical metaphors, he then turns here and says, but because of your steadfast love, it's better than life. My soul and my flesh seek you because you are better than everything else. God is known by his steadfast love. David alluded to the same thing back in Psalm 62. If you just look back there in verses 11 and 12, He says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. David's view or vision of God encourages him not only to believe, but to trust that the Lord would not leave him. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. He's in the wilderness, in the midst of some painful times, his own son after him. And he says, but that doesn't matter, because the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Paul echoes the same thought or the same pattern of belief, right? In Acts chapter 20, he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish the course And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, my life doesn't matter because of what has been done in me. Because of what I've been called to. Because of what I have experienced here. And it's because of the steadfast love that David then says, my lips, my lips will praise you. Because of God's steadfast love, David must respond with praise. He has no option. There's no other way to respond to that because the steadfast love is so overwhelming, so essential, so life-giving that he only can respond with praise. My lips will praise you. Because God's love is ever-present, even now, even in this very moment, he must praise. He says, my lips pointing to this verbal outpouring from the heart. He is filled with the reality of God's steadfast love. And what pours out from that? But praise from his very mouth. And he says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name will I lift up my hands. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, which causes him to praise with his lips. What are those praises that pray forth? Blessings. To bless is to show appreciation and gratitude. To show thanksgiving He says, I will bless you as long as I live. He commits to a life that will be known by that of blessing the Lord. Not only in his current situation, but also in the future. He desires to be known by praising the Lord with gratitude and thanksgiving. And he says, in your name, I will lift up my hands. It parallels praising. David said he would praise with his lips, so he'd make this verbal affirmation. Now he says, I will praise with my hands. A physical affirmation. It's a whole body process that's going on here. In the name of Yahweh, in the name of God, it is a staple of God. He's saying, This is my foundation. This is where I stand. This is where my hope and my trust is. And it is in His name that I will lift up my hands. It goes far beyond verbal affirmation, it goes into a whole being. So frequently we talk about people saying that they're believers, but then living lives that are opposite that of a believer. There's been times in David's past that we could agree he probably seemed like that. But he says here, my physical body will be that of praise. I will lift up my hands in the name of Yahweh. He wants to be living a life that is that of praise. So we see this search for the Lord. And now we turn our attention from verses 1 through 4 to verses 5 through 8 as we look at the satisfaction in the Lord. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. Sorry, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you and the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Once again, David goes back to utilizing physical metaphors, right? To describe something spiritual happening. He's responding to that opening of the psalm. He says, my soul thirsts and my flesh faints. But in the Lord, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. Marrow and fat, as the Masoretic text says, it's this richest of foods, the most delicate and and delectable and tasty and delicious foods that will be filled up to the brim. He's saying, I will not hunger, I will not thirst because I'll be filled with this reality of fat and rich food. What does his soul being satisfied result in? It results in praise bursting forth from his mouth with joyful lips. He's just reaffirming this reality of his need to praise the Lord for the work that he has done. Joyful praise of the Lord is what is going to pour out because he is filled in his soul. All he can do is praise. He must praise the Lord. He says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Notice David doesn't stop with public affirmation of praise. He doesn't stop with even physical affirmation of praise, but remembers God. On his bed. As David lays down or as he wakes up, he is ever reminded of the reality of who God is and what God has done in and through him. He's reminded of God's steadfast love that he had talked about previously. David gives all believers the reminder that we are indeed to remember what the Lord has done like he says, tap into those memories of God's work within the world and within each of your individual lives and remember it. Cherish it. Recall it. It helps you to remain faithful and struggle and challenge. It helps you to praise when you desire not to. He says, if anyone has a reason not to praise, it would be me right now. But he says, I remember what the Lord has done. He says he meditates on the Lord in the watches of the night. The verb here in Hebrew used for meditate is the same as found in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. To meditate, we frequently think probably when you hear meditation of some new age thing or Buddhism or something like that where you sit silently and just... Wait for something to happen. But that's not what is being spoken of here. To meditate is translated more to growl or to speak, to moan or mutter, to ponder on and to utter verbally something. It's an active meditation. It's not just sitting there. It's not just being silent, but rather uttering the reality of the Lord. It's recalling these things of what the Lord has done. Recalling his word. This is why it is so important for us to memorize scripture. So that we can meditate on, on it day and night. We can mull it over. We can chew on it. We can continue to speak it at all times. He says he did it in the night watches. It's the same thing that's found in Judges chapter 7. There was a Jewish tradition where there were three nighttime watches to kind of manage the area and to watch out for intruders. He says, during these night watches, I, I, as I'm sitting there, I'm mulling over your word. I'm reciting your word. I'm calling upon you. He would meditate on the Lord through the night. He can rest in the Lord even in the night's under the cover of darkness, because he can meditate on the word that tells him who the living God is and what the living God does. He says, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. As David meditates on the Lord, he, calls, he recalls God's provision and his care for him. As David looks back on his life, he can remember the many difficult times. He probably remembers the very start when he was anointed to be king and he says, "But but me?" And then Saul seeks to kill him. Then he falls to sin with Bathsheba and probably felt lost completely. We can see that from the Psalms and the way he writes as he cries out to the Lord in his anguish, in his agony, in his guilt. He's been through some challenging times. And David says, but I know you have been my help in all of those times. He sees that he is protected under this shadow of the Lord's wings. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that the Lord has physical wings, but rather that the Lord is a shelter. For David, where he finds rest and protection, where he is being able to be held in the midst of every trial and every struggle. It is a shadow of protection that David will then rejoice or sing for joy. It is because he knows that he is protected, because he knows the wing is over him, that he can rejoice and say, Lord, I know you have me. I know you control everything. I know that you are with me. And he says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David clings to the Lord, who has been his help, and that he has rested now in the shadow of his wings. That word cling means to cleave or to hang on to tightly. Genesis chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling to or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a sense of, being held tightly together, not to be separated. David's soul is held fast to the Lord. What is the result of that? He says, Your right hand upholds me. The right hand is shown to be that of one of authority and power. The Greek translation of right hand, dexios, is found in Matthew and Hebrews, Matthew 26. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Hebrews chapter 10. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The right hand is that of authority, it is that of a power It is that that holds control. The right hand is the one that would be the one to sustain in his mind. He says, your right hand, your power and your authority, your glory is what upholds me. It's what sustains me. It's what keeps me going in the midst of all of this, all this darkness and all the things I'm experiencing here. And it's because of that that we can then turn to verses 9 through 11 and see the security in the Lord. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall re- rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the malice of liars will be stopped. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. David is preparing for this coming battle, this battle and this war time. And he is being pursued with violent intent. But in the midst of this, David remembers this provision. He remembers that his right, God's right hand is what is upholding him. And he says, those who seek destro- to destroy me will not do so. He looks back on the past, in the battles, and the various trials that he's experienced, all those things that are going on. And he says, I will not be destroyed, but they will be. He says they will go down into the depths of the earth, or Sheol, the place of the dead, the place of darkness. They will not be able to defeat David and his few people. They would, not be, they would be held back by God, not by David's power. Notice he never mentions his own ability. And by this time, David has gone through numerous battles. He's fought off numerous people. He's already slaved Goliath. He's already done all of these cool things. And yet he doesn't claim to his own skill, his own knowledge, his own power, his own ability, his own masterful general mindset. He doesn't claim to any of that. He never mentions his own ability or his own work once. If anyone could have, it could have been David, was probably the most honored leader of his time. He was one of the most feared. Because, not because of him, but because of what has happened when he led an army into battle. People would fall. They would fall in battle before him. His, his men, no matter how small or how big, would just overwhelm masses. And he doesn't say anything about it. He doesn't even mention how many people are with him in this time. Rather, he says, those who, destry, see, uh, those who seek to destroy my life won't. He knows this because of everything that has been mentioned before. And because he knows in this last verse, he says, and the king shall rejoice in God. He says, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. God will slay the enemies of David. They will go into battle and they will be killed. Once again, David doesn't say that he has some power or some ability to make it a reality. It is God alone. It is God alone that will make it so that they fall to the power of the sword. And it says they will be a portion for jackals or eaten by wild animals. Notice this is complete loss, complete abandonment. Whoever is going against him will be left on the battlefield as a portion for jackals. One of the great statements of the U.S. military is, I'm sure you've heard, no man left behind. As men would go into battle in various wars over time, that was the slogan or the motto that would be said, no man left behind. Didn't matter if they had died on the battlefield or if they were injured or if they were physically held up. No man left behind. There are stories throughout history of men traveling back into war zones just to collect the dead just to collect those who are struggling to get out because no man was left behind. But notice this psalm. There will be those that are left behind to be food for the jackals. And why? Because there will only be no one left. There will be no one there to collect them. They will be abandoned because God will have victory, because God will ensure Victory. And he closes out with verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. This use of the third person is significant because it speaks to a courtly language, calling himself the king. But also points to this never-ending reality that this should be the character of every king of Israel from that moment forward until the Messiah came. Notice where his rejoice is. It's not even in the defeat of his enemies. He had every If he has this in mind, he has every reason to rejoice. I can rejoice because God will defeat my enemies. But no, he says, it's not even in returning home or even the temple. It is in God alone that I rejoice because of who he is. That's what he said throughout this whole time. It's talking about who is God. He is the God that he thirsted and flesh, his flesh fainted for. He is the God that he has seen this power and glory. He is the God that love is better than life. He's the God that is deserving of all blessing. He is the soul-satisfying God. He is the God that David would meditate upon on the night that was shadowing David in his wing that his right hand would uphold. This is his God. He doesn't claim victory in himself or in his own ability to battle against anything. David, if anybody, has seen how little he can do at times. He had a chance to battle against his own sin, and he didn't do that. And so he stands before the God humbled and says, Lord, I have literally nothing to offer in this moment. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exalt. Who is the hymn of this line? Well, the New King James puts it with a capital H, which would point to God himself. Others have argued that it would be the king himself. But in either case, it is to take an oath of loyalty to God or to God's authority on earth. It is to say that we shall exalt him. We shall Hold him in high regard because God has placed him as this authority. And because God is our superior authority. Because he is the one who has dictated this situation. This is the person here. To exalt means to rejoice or to give glory. The result of the allegiance? Glory and boasting in the Lord. Because it is through him that you receive all things. And he finishes out, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The deception of his enemies will be stopped. Whatever grumbling, whatever lies were being promulgated around, whatever is being told to others would be stopped. And what would fill the earth? Rejoicing in praise to the Lord. So as we close, you may be thinking, well, that is a beautiful text. But what about me? I'm not going into battle, though you are. I am not King David. No, you're not. Neither am I. So what? Well, I'd like to share a few things from our text. First, the question must come, who is our God? Who is our God? David is crying out to Yahweh our Lord and our God. Notice what we see about God in the text. He is to be sought. He is a God that is present. He is a God that can be approached. He is a God that is made available to his people. He is to be rejoiced in. Notice how often David mentions rejoicing. My lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands in your name. Praise with joyful lips. Sing for joy. Rejoice in God. Exult. He is a God who is to be rejoiced in. And he is a defender of his people. He stands for his people. He does all things for their good and for his glory. However, to experience Yahweh in this way is only possible This morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if not, you cannot say these things about God. It is incredible to see David's response to God in the midst of trials here. He doesn't turn from him, but rather turns to him when he is put under extreme pressure, extreme stress, extreme hardship. He responds with praise and seeking the Lord and trusting in him. Do you realize this morning that if you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is your God? And you were blessed in a way that David had no clue of. Because you have the Messiah. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is an advocate before the Father. We're given grace. We have the Holy Spirit that has been given given to us to help us conform more to the likeness of Christ. Friends, if you're truly believers here today, you have all the more reason to rejoice in the God, your God. So we can ask these questions to echo David in the psalm. What are you thirsting for? Believer, your answer should be the Lord. You should be thirsting for the Lord. Why? Because he is the only way that you can be satisfied. It is only in him. John chapter 30, or sorry, John 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now this does obviously not mean a physical hunger or thirst, but rather spiritually. It's like being filled with a fat and rich food, as David talked about. The next question we should ask is, where do you find your rest? The Lord. Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all who, are la- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Where is your rejoicing this morning? The Lord. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to go ahead and read those for you just real quick. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And notice this. These things I have spoken to you that, you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Where do we find our joy? By being in the vine. By being connected to this vine, that we might bear fruit. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. However, as I said earlier this morning, if you are not a believer, if anyone hears this and is not a believer this morning, you have nothing to rejoice in. You have no God to defend you. You have nothing to help you. No wing to cover you. So all the questions turn back to you again. What are you thirsting for? If not in the Lord, how can you ever be satisfied? Where will you find your rest? Isaiah 48 says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Where do you rejoice? There is no place to truly rejoice because you have no peace. So if you aren't a believer here this morning, if you hear this at a later time, Repent. Repent and turn to Christ. You are sinful, as am I, and as is everyone. But God has made a way so that we can echo David because of the cross of Christ. Where we can approach him and worship him and rejoice in him because he has made a way for us to be saved. Made a way for us to receive righteousness where we don't have any To be given light where there was darkness. To be forgiven where we deserved his wrath. Friends, please hear this. Your desire should be to thirst for the Lord. To be satisfied by him. To find rest and rejoicing in him alone. David's longing for God is satisfied as he worships and meditates on the Lord as he prepares to go into battle. In this psalm, he has given us a great picture of what we as believers should be doing as we prepare for ongoing spiritual battle. We have them today and we'll continue to have them. If you're not battling, there's something wrong. You must be battling sin. You must be battling it. We must seek the Lord. We must worship him. We must meditate upon him. As we go into battle. As we can only fight in his power and in his glory. Do not try to battle the sin on your own. It is impossible to put it to death on your own. It is only by God and in him that you are able to. We need to cling to him and to his right hand. For that is what upholds us. It is through this that we experience the power and glory of the Lord. And our hunger and our thirsting can be truly satisfied. Christ reminds us of some comforting words here in John chapter 16. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that, you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, I invite you to join me in prayer as we close and pray back this psalm.